Good morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. We have been in a series talking about evangelism, just again trying to follow up the series that we had on the Gospel Reset, trying to give you some practical help in sharing your faith with people in our culture today. And so we've been discussing this process of evangelism. It goes through generally three stages, the cultivation stage, the sowing stage, and the harvest stage. As we looked at the cultivation stage, we noted that that's where we try to build a relationship with someone that is not connected to God, with someone that's not a Christian, someone that has never submitted their will to the will of Christ. And so we appeal to their emotions in that stage, and as we try to build that friendship, that relationship with them, we try to identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus during that time in a non-threatening manner. Now last week we looked at the sowing stage, because once that friendship has been established and it's on solid ground, you look for the opportunity to get your friend involved somehow with the scriptures. To find a way, whether through a small group study, a one-on-one time of, of study, whatever it takes, but simply to be able to plant the seed, sow the seed of the gospel in their lives. And so that's where you have to relate to them what the good news is. The good news from God is that he loved us so much, he sent his son to save us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel that he delivered to us was that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. So in the sowing stage, we are appealing to their, to their mind, all right? We're, we're approaching their mind, their intellect, as we try to plant that seed of the gospel in their hearts. Then the last personal aspect of an individual is their will that needs to be yielded to Christ. And here's where we talk about the harvest stage. Their emotions have been prepared through Christ, through the building of your friendship, Their mind has been confronted with the message of Jesus as you've sown the gospel into their lives. And so now it's time to address their will. And that's the last thing that a person is willing to yield their will to the will of Christ. And so your task in this stage of evangelism is simply to help your friend understand that a decision needs to be made concerning Christ to either accept him and follow and obey the scriptures or not to follow him, in essence, to reject him. And this can be a time of real struggle for people. The sinful man or person inside of us is often reluctant to turn over the control of their life to Christ. So this is the time where you have to show great patience. It doesn't always happen quickly. 
Larry, you've been involved in ministry. I'm sure you've seen some that it took years and years for someone to come to Christ. I've known people that have had the seed of the gospel planted in them who knew what they should do to accept Christ, and then they didn't do it for years and years and years. And for some, not at all. And that, that hurts. That breaks your heart. But then there are those times where maybe it takes a matter of days or just a few weeks. You never know how quickly the seed's going to grow. So in that time that you're waiting for the decision, what do you do? Well, you continue to pray. You should be praying throughout the whole process. That's what, where we began. But you continue to cultivate the seed, building the relationship, and you water the seed. That's right. You water it. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, we find these words of the Apostle Paul. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it but God made it grow. And so while you wait, again, you continue to cultivate friendship. You water the seed of the gospel as it begins to grow in the life of your friend. Now, how do you do that? How do you water the seed? Well, there are probably different ways to do that in staying in touch with your friend. I think one of the best ways to do it is to share your story. Your personal story of how you came to Christ, the struggle that you went through in, in making that decision, in yielding up your will, your heart, your life, your soul to God and his son Christ Jesus. How did you come to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because we need to be sure that we relate the struggle that we had in being convinced to turn our life over to the Lordship of Jesus and to let them know, hey, it's not unusual to, to be reluctant at this point. It's not unusual to have some questions at this point. You know, and with every person, the story is different. But every one of us that belong to Jesus has had to turn from sin in order to serve Christ. So share with them how you did it. What brought you to that point? What was going on in your life? Who shared the message? How did it all come about? I grew up in a little country church called Gilead Presbyterian Church. It sits on the Lawrence Richland County line. My two sisters that attend here, our folks, I mean, that's where we went because Grandpa and Grandma went there and one of Mom's sisters went there. And, and I mean, hey, on a good Sunday, we'd have 50 people on a good Sunday. Well, it was back in the days of ice cream socials and all kinds of stuff, all right? But that's where I grew up going to church. We didn't have any preaching, except on special occasions. We just had a song service and then Sunday school, and then we would reassemble for the report before we went home. That was it. The first Sunday school teacher I remember was Myrtle Kaiser. Uh, wonderful lady, Jean and Myrtle, lived south of Sumner on the... Sumner Lancaster blacktop, but we met downstairs in the basement and had a couple partitions around us because the men's class that my grandpa attended also met downstairs, and they could get kind of loud sometimes. But eventually, as I got older, I was promoted to the upstairs class of kids that was taught by Ed McVicker. 
Ed and his wife Mabel, wonderful people. Ed uh, was a mail carrier out of the Sumner Post Office. He was the only school teacher my mother ever had because she went all the way through the eighth grade at the Buckhorn School. That old building's still standing down there, owned by the Amish now. But what a wonderful man and a wonderful teacher. He had such big hands. I remember he'd say, it's, it's, like, it's like cutting a pie into so many pieces, and that big hand would be out there. But a great teacher. But as time went on, we, we kind of, we just didn't attend as often. And eventually, we pretty much quit going all together. It was during my eighth grade year, which was back in 1972, I think that Glenn and Norma Hessler began to build their new house right beside our house, just east of Sumner. See, Norma, I told you I was going to talk about you, okay? And I remember walking across the playground to go to lunch up at Billy Jones' store in Sumner. Back then, we didn't have closed campus. And an eighth grader like myself, we could just walk uptown to Billy Jones's. I could get a 16-ounce, not the 12-ounce, but the big 16-ounce bottle of RC and a bag of Ozark-style barbecue chips for a quarter. Both of them for a quarter, maybe 26 cents with tax. I don't remember. But that's what I'd go up and get just about every day if I didn't like what was being served in the cafeteria. And I remember walking across the playground to go down the alley up to Billy Jones's when there's this little kid that comes up that says, hey, we're building a house right by yours, and I've got a basketball, a baseball, and a football. And I thought, who is this little punk? Well, it was Kevin Hessler, Glenn and Norma's son, who became my, like my kid brother through the years. And guess what? We played a lot of basketball and baseball and football together in the yard, especially Nerf basketball in Glen Enormous Garage. We were really good at it. You wouldn't want to take us on, I'm telling you. Well, Glenn and Norma and Kevin attended Central Christian Church in Sumner, and they invited me to go to church with them. And I did. On the other side of us lived Albert and Mary Welker, who attended there as well. They had bought my grandpa and grandma Cox's house. And uh, they went there, and they had invited me to go. So anyway, I ended up going. And in February of 1973, we had a youth revival with a CIY team, Christ and Youth Team, led by David Hargrave. They came to Central, did a youth revival. They had a group of young people that came and sang, many of whom attended St. Louis Christian College. Now, I had already been taught by attending at Central for a little while that I needed to be baptized. And I'd been praying about that and asking God for the opportunity to be baptized. And so during that youth revival, some of that group came out to our house, and Bob Griswold from Fairfield, Illinois, who was in the CIY team, took me in my bedroom. We sat on my bed, and he shared with me the plan of salvation. And on Tuesday evening, February 13th, 1973, I was baptized into Christ. My story it's really kind of dull. It's not very spectacular, all right? I was not hooked on drugs, and God got a hold of me, all right? I, I, I mean, as far as the people at Central were concerned, I think they thought that I was a pretty good kid. <laughs> I hope they thought that anyway. Uh, Norma could probably tell you some stories that might be different. I don't know. 
But I knew when I made that decision and I accepted Christ that everything had changed inside of me. That was the defining moment of my life for all of eternity. And I really don't remember a whole lot more about that year of my life in 1973, except in that fall, I started attending Red Hill High School due to the consolidation of Sumner and Bridgeport. But that one decision to accept Christ has determined every other aspect of the decades that have followed. And it all came about because of people that built a relationship with me, that cared about me. Maybe your testimony is more dramatic or spectacular than mine. Several years ago, Kent Williams was speaking at the morning chapel session at Ozark Christian College. And Kent was ministering out at the Orinogo Christian Church, which is really just out in the middle of the cornfields of Missouri, uh, out a little distance from Joplin. Uh, you got to get lost to find it. I mean, it's way out there. And yet that church out in the middle of the cornfields of Missouri grew from 150 to over 1,000 during Kent's ministry. It's an amazing congregation. But this day he's preaching at the chapel service at Ozark, and in his sermon he was sharing with the students how no one is outside of the reach of God's changing power through Christ. And so he told the story of witnessing to the local Harley-Davidson repair shop owner. His name was Crazy Frank. I mean, that's just what everybody called him. He has since died from cancer, but but Kent related that Crazy Frank had lived as far away from Christ as a bad boy biker could possibly live. But Kent decided to build a relationship, strike up a friendship with this rough character. And through that process of lifestyle, relational evangelism, Crazy Frank decided to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior. But while Kent is preaching his sermon and telling the, the young people that there at Ozark, he said, but you know, Nobody can tell you what a change Christ can make in a life more powerfully than Crazy Frank himself. And at that moment in the chapel service, Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild blared across the sound system, and then there was this huge rumble. And Crazy Frank started his Harley, drove it right down the center aisle of the Ozark Chapel, right up to the front, turned it off, got off, in his leathers and his chains, he walked up onto the stage and he said if Christ could change his life, Christ could change anybody's life. Let me tell you, the students in that chapel service have probably never forgotten that day. What an impact he made. You can read about that in Terry Boland's book, Make Disciples. The Apostle Paul, he had a spectacular story, did he not? I mean, think of it, earlier in his life, he's known as Saul of Tarsus, the church's number one enemy. He grew up a Pharisee in Tarsus, a Roman citizen in a Roman city. His parents were so devoted that they sent Saul to Jerusalem to study with the, the famous Gamaliel, the rabbi Gamaliel. And there, in essence, Saul was the valedictorian of his class, the brightest hope for leadership among the Pharisees. And like most Pharisees, Saul supported the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't believe this guy was the Messiah. Of course not. He died on a tree, on a cross. He was cursed of God. 
So when Jesus' disciples began to preach that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was both Lord and Christ, that infuriated Saul of Tarsus. He even was nearby when Stephen was stoned to death and was approving of that execution. He became the high priest point man for the systematic extermination of Christianity in Jerusalem. But he wasn't, he wasn't content with merely purging Jerusalem of Christians. He wanted to end the movement completely. And so when he heard that there were Christians up in Damascus, he took action. He obtained extradition papers from the high priest requiring the Damascus synagogue leaders to hand over all Christians to Saul so that they could be returned to Jerusalem for trial. And so he's on his way to Damascus when he gets knocked down to the ground by a bright light. And Jesus called him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And ultimately Saul was forced to accept that he had been acting as God's enemy, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he was the Messiah. So Jesus gave him orders to go into the city and wait for instructions, and Saul did so. God sent Ananias to Saul to share the gospel and to baptize him, and then Saul began to preach Jesus, the very one that he had previously hated, and the rest is history. He has written more of your New Testament than any other individual. What a story. What a testimony he had. Listen, folks, in our evangelistic efforts, we should never feel as if anyone is beyond God's ability to save, beyond God's ability to use. No matter what they've been or what they've done, God can use them if for no other reason, just to prove to us he can, he can use them and that he can save them. The most powerful argument for Christian faith is the changed lives, the lives changed by the power of Jesus. I once read the story of an avid atheist and infidel in London named Charles Bradlaugh. There was also a minister in London named H.P. Hughes. Well, Bradlaugh challenged Hughes to a debate. Hughes was this, this minister who administered to the homeless and the poor and, and, and everybody knew him, but Bradlaw challenged him to a debate on the existence of God and the legitimacy of religious faith. And Hughes accepted the offer. He said, I will come and debate you, but you must agree to let me bring 100 people who say their lives have been profoundly changed by Christ, and then you can cross-examine them to see if their conversion is sincere. But you must also bring 100 people who will stand up and say that their lives have been made profoundly stronger and nobler and more decent by their lack of faith. The day of the debate came, and Bradlaugh didn't show up. Hughes was present with 100 people who gave their testimonies that night, and many unbelievers who came to hear the debate gave their lives to Christ. Let me tell you another hard-to-believe story of someone that came to Christ. Does the name David Berkowitz ring a bell? In the 1970s, he was known as the son of Sam. Remember what he did? 
there in the mid-1970s. He killed several people, injured many others. He was named the 44 caliber killer because he used a 44 caliber bulldog revival, uh, re revolver and he killed six people, wounded seven others by July of 1977. The killing spree terrorized New Yorkers. It gained worldwide notoriety. He eluded the biggest police manhunt in the history of New York City, all the while leaving letters behind him that mocked the police and promised further crimes, which were highly publicized by the press. He pled uh, guilty, ultimately, when he was caught, but he initially claimed to have been obeying the orders of a demon that had manifested itself in the form of a dog that belonged to his neighbor, Sam. The son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Well, a few years ago, Focus on the Family shared a series of interviews with him because 10 years after being imprisoned, he came to the Lord. And his life has been completely changed. And now he ministers in jail. The guards testify he is a completely changed man, a model prisoner. He helps counsel other inmates. He shares the gospel with them. He writes articles for Christian magazines. Because of what he did in his crimes in the state of New York and other states since, passed a law that a murderer like him could receive no profit, no funds, no income from the writing of books or articles or whatever. So he receives no income for it, but he still writes the articles for Christian magazines. The point being, folks, the person that you think is unredeemable, first century Christians would have thought that a Saul of Tarsus. That may be the very person that God chooses to be a special servant for his glory. I mean, if Saul of Tarsus can become a great missionary, God can do anything through anyone. He's the God of the least likely. God loves to call people that make the church squirm. He does. That makes, makes us protest. Oh, Lord, not, not that person. Surely not him. I mean, don't you know what he's done? Lord, that person, that person can be dangerous. We could get hurt, God. God does his best work through people that we deem beyond help. So don't ever give up praying for someone because you never know when God may rock their world and bring them into the kingdom. But we're talking today about that, that, that stage of patience that we have to have while we're waiting for a harvest to take place. And I think one of the best things that we can do is to use our testimony when we're sharing the gospel news. We've got a story to tell. Every one of us that have accepted Christ. So as you continue to cultivate the relationship and you water the seed of the gospel that's been sown, share your story. Tell how you became convinced to yield your life to Christ. What was it? that finally helped you turn your will over to Christ's control. And when you share your testimony, you need to emphasize you're not perfect, but that Christ is continually at work in your life to help you live for him. And it, it doesn't matter if your personal testimony is as 
unspectacular as mine or as amazing as Crazy Frank's or the Apostle Paul's. The only issue is that we use it to help our unbelieving friend recognize it's normal to have an inner struggle as the time grows near to make a decision for Christ. But after you share your story with them, you need to ask them if they'd like to know how to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they say no, then respect their decision. Back away a little bit, but let them know you'll continue to pray for them. But if they say yes, it's time to share with them a simple presentation of the gospel message. And that's what we'll look at more next week as we talk more about the harvest stage. Share your story. Water the seed. And that's the message today. I don't know what decisions that you may have you'd want to make for Christ today. Probably about everyone in here is already a Christian. But I pray that this will be some practical help for you just to help lead, help you lead someone to Jesus. Let's stand and sing.